Well, as I said at the beginning of the service, as we already know, it is, of course, Palm Sunday today. Now, um, we've got one chapter, or we'll say one chapter, we've got one study in the book of Jude yet to do, um, but I'm going to put it on hold for a couple of weeks because... Uh, As it is Palm Sunday, I thought it'd be good to do again a review of this day. Uh, Next week, of course, Resurrection Sunday, we'll spend a a morning just looking at some of the uh, incredible events that took place um, that have secured our salvation. Um, Not just that Jesus died on the cross, but that he rose again to give us new life. So we'll look at these kind of two topical studies for the next couple of weeks. But this morning, Palm Sunday... Um, it's one of the few dates uh, or a few days in tradition that actually they get right. It was actually on a Sunday. Now, most of the things that tradition has passed down to us, uh, it's got wrong. And uh, as I said earlier, we obviously think of Good Friday and people tend to think that's the day that Jesus was crucified. It wasn't. It was the Thursday. We'll talk about that a little bit next week, no doubt. Um, but this day, Palm Sunday, Definitely one of the most important days in history. Now, that's quite a a staggering claim, really, because there's lots of important days. There's lots of days in Scripture that we could speak about. You know, and we celebrate Palm Sunday every year. Typically in this country, we do them for many Christian communities and uh, places around the world. But, you know, what is the real significance of this day? And, you know, why is it that I'm saying that this is one of the most important days recorded in the Bible? You know, what makes this day stand apart? Well, partly because we find that people like Zechariah and Daniel prophesied of this specific day 500 years or more before it actually happened. Now, that's staggering. Just for a moment, stop and think of an event that might take place 500 years from now. You can't even begin to think that far ahead, what the world might be like, you know, what the governmental situation might be like, and the, who's ruling and reigning. And well, I mean, for us as Christians, we're pretty confident that 500 years from now, Jesus will be ruling and reigning, will be in the millennium. But, you know, in the normal scheme of things, to try and think 500 years ahead uh, is almost impossible to do. But even more remarkable than that, David spoke of this day a thousand years before it took place. And then we actually find that Moses spoke prophetically of this day nearly one and a half thousand years before that. So about two and a half thousand years back. It's just staggering time frames that we're looking at. Now, challenge again, just think of any other day in history that's like this. Now, we could, of course, speak of the the day of the resurrection, and that absolutely qualifies. We can speak of the day of the crucifixion, and that qualifies. But really, within this week, we have three incredible days that are detailed in advance prophetically, and all that was said of them came to pass as it had been prophesied. It just goes to underline that God is outside of time and has revealed the future before it happens to serve as undeniable proof of his existence. Now, of course, in the Bible, God speaks through direct, specific prophecy. And of course, types and shadows. So examples, models that have given to us in advance of what will later be. Now, the details of Passion Week, that's the week that we're talking about, that goes from today, Palm Sunday, all the way through to uh, next Sunday, which will be the Resurrection Sunday. All the details of that week were recorded, again, at least a thousand years before they took place. And in some cases, some of the events uh, even further back than that. Now, we see them recorded through the Feasts of Israel, uh, 
through the Messianic Psalms and through the Old Testament prophets. So this is something that really, again, underlines just how incredible the Bible really is and proves it to be God's inspired word to man. This couldn't be something that man has put together because you simply cannot tell the future in advance. And yet God says that this is one of the tests that we can apply to prove that his word is true. In fact, we read in Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring, notice what God says, the end from the beginning. See, God tells us what is going to be before it comes to pass. It's not prediction, it's prophecy. There's a big difference. Prediction is an educated guess based upon some empirical data of what might be. But it's not certain. That's prediction. Whereas prophecy is actually history recorded in advance before we get there. And God says that from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So through direct specific prophecy, again, history recorded in advance, we have these types and these shadows, which really are just events that anticipate something that is yet to occur. It's a model in advance of the real thing. Now, in Hosea, God himself says, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions and used, notice his word, similitudes by the ministry of of the prophets. So something in advance that points to something that was to be the fulfillment or a greater revelation of that fact. Now, of course, the situation with Adam and Eve will be one of these models. Of course, Eve was the one that ate of the fruit of the tree. Adam willingly joined her in that predicament. He willingly ate of the fruit, whereas Eve was deceived and and, and because of the, the deception of the serpent. We're told in 1 Timothy 2.14, that Adam knew what he was doing. So in other words, he loved his wife so much that he went to join her in a predicament, which of course therefore presented the possibility that their offspring, that this is how God worked it, that their offspring would then one day be able to bring about salvation. Of course, that's what happened through Jesus coming, the seed of the woman. You know, and it's the picture we have of Christ and the church. The church, the individuals make up the church, you and I, we send. But our groom, just like Adam, left his position and came into this world, gave up all that he had to join his bride in her predicament in order to save her. So it's an incredible model. And of course, we've got that wonderful model that we could spend uh, you know, weeks going over. There's so much detail in it with Abraham and Isaac, how Abraham as a father was given this uh, command by the Lord to go and offer up his only son. Um, of course, God the father, his only son was Jesus Christ. And Abraham, from the point of receiving that command, effectively Isaac was dead to him for three days, just as Jesus was in the grave for three days. Of course, where they went to offer this sacrifice was a place called Mount Moriah. It's the same mountain that Jesus would eventually be crucified. So we have a father willing to offer up his son as a sacrifice, as an offering. And then later on the very same spot, God the Father offers up Jesus on the same spot. So the whole thing with Abraham and Isaac was a dress rehearsal for what God himself was going to do. And Abraham acknowledges that by naming the place Jehovah Jireh or in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. If you remember as Isaac 
is walking up the mount with uh, Abraham. Isaac says, you know, we've got the word and everything else, but where is the lamb? Uh, And Abraham responds and says, God will provide himself a lamb. Not will provide a lamb for himself. He will provide himself the lamb. And so this is what we see, that God provides Jesus, part of the Godhead, as the sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. Now, we could go on and look at these types of models with Joseph. There's over a hundred different ways that Jesus is a type in advance or a model of Jesus Christ. Of course, Joseph was a sinner. He needed to be saved like you and I. And yet there is no sin recorded of Joseph. The Holy Spirit has kind of edited out of the text any transgression on Joseph's part. And of course, Joseph was rejected by his brethren and then exalted to the highest place, just as we see with Jesus. And there's many, many other examples. Jonah is one that Jesus himself points to as a model in advance, that just as Jonah was three days and three nights uh, in the heart of the earth, so the Lord would be the same. And he gives us that as a, a model. And then, of course, we have the feasts of Israel. There's seven specific feasts recorded in Leviticus 23 and elsewhere in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, Paul tells us this. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day. And that's where we get our word holiday from, a holy day, or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. And notice what Paul says, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body or the fulfillment or the substance is of Christ. In other words, the feasts were a shadow, a model in advance of what will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So each one of the feasts all speak of Jesus. So to understand the feasts of Israel, you need to be looking at Jesus and seeing how they're fulfilled in and through him. Now, Israel themselves have 70 Sabbaths, according to the law of Moses. There's 52 weekly Sabbaths. There's seven days for Passover which is that period we're kind of in now in terms of how we're looking at it. Of course, the Jewish calendar is slightly different to ours, but uh, these seven days from um, the, the the 14th of uh, Abib, their, their first month of their year, from that point, there's seven days. Uh, included within that, there's the Feast of Pentecost. Sorry, after that, sorry, apologies. Uh, 52, 50 days later, correction, there's the Feast of Pentecost. And then in the, the tail end of their um, religious calendar, um, they have in the seventh month the Feast of Trumpets, and then another day for the Feast of Atonement, seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles, and then as in another day, the eighth day of assembly. All of that combined makes 70 days. So these are the specific Sabbaths or feasts, if you like, that Israel have through the year. And Israel's Sabbaths were based on the lunar calendar. Now, the ones that really are applicable in regard to Passion Week, this week we're talking about, uh, are the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. Let's just have a very quick look at some of the details that we're told. In Leviticus 23, we're told that in the 14th day of this first month at even is the Lord's Passover. Now notice this, is the 14th day of the first month is when the Passover was to occur. And then the next day, okay, that's the Passover. The next day, the 15th day, of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So these two incredibly important feasts in Israel's calendar, back to back, one on the 14th, one on the 15th. And it says seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. And notice what it says, very important, you shall do no servile work therein. It doesn't say you shall no work, but you'll do no servile work. What does that mean? Well, as with a regular Saturday Sabbath, they were to do no work whatsoever. 
But when we had certain feast days, they were permitted to do some work, but not work for which they would receive remuneration. So nothing that they would be paid to do. But you could certainly prepare meals. You could prepare food. You could do those sorts of things on those occasions. So there's a difference. Some feast days, no work at all was permitted. Other days, certain work was permitted, which is why in the New Testament, you come across a strange term. It talks about the day of preparation. Now, in the context, particularly Matthew uses this, Luke and so on, they would talk about the 14th, which was itself a feast day, but they'd speak of it as a day of preparation, getting ready, the food ready and everything else for the 15th, which was a holy day, a separate uh, day when which no work was to be done on the 15th day. So there's slight differences. And it's really important as you dig into the details to see how that all plays out. We're told that an offering shall be made by fire unto the Lord for seven days. And the seventh day is a holy convocation. You should do no servile work therein. So again, you could prepare food, but you weren't allowed to do anything for which you'd be paid. So that feast of unleavened bread, as we said. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, when you become into the land, which I give unto you, and you shall reap the harvest thereof, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. Now, this is very clear. This feast that we're speaking of here, which is the feast of first fruits, was to occur whenever it was to be. It would be the day after the Saturday Sabbath, the regular weekly Sabbath, which means that this feast of first fruits would always fall on a Sunday because it would be on the day, the morrow after the Sabbath. And the priest was then to offer this. So we have the Passover on the 14th. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th. And then the Feast of First Fruits, which would be the day after the Sabbath, which would follow the Passover. And that means it would always be on a Sunday. Now, of course, we're told that in the volume of the book, it speaks of Jesus. Now, the Feast of Passover foreshadows Christ's sacrificial death. Jesus became, as it were, that Passover lamb. Paul actually states that, that Jesus is our Passover. So just as when the children of Israel were in Egypt, they were to put the blood of this lamb, that this blood was shed on the lintels and the doorposts. So anybody who is marked by the blood of Christ also will be saved. As effectively God passed over Egypt, the firstborn of all the land died, uh, who's, who were not within those dwellings. And so for us, anybody who is not in Christ will be subject to God's wrath. Then we have, of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which speaks of his burial. That's the day, that, or as it turns to the evening, because the Jewish day starts in the evening, because you go back to the days of creation. Strangely, it says, an evening and morning were the first day, and so on. So the day starts, and the the Jews have always adopted this, the Jewish day starts in the evening. So typically, when it gets to six o'clock in the evening, it becomes the next day. So in terms of calendar, we tend to think of it as the same date, but in the Jewish mindset, it becomes a new day. Um, And so as it's getting to the day of the crucifixion, as Jesus is crucified, it gets to the evening, to six o'clock, and it turns to the next day in the Jewish mindset it becomes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus then is placed in the ground as he's buried. And then, of course, on the Sunday, we have the Feast of First Fruits, speaking of Jesus's resurrection. He was the first fruits of those to rise from the dead. Now, back in Exodus, 
chapter 12, Moses said this, uh, or the Lord says this to Moses to give to the congregation, to speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, in the 10th day, make a note of that, in the 10th day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Notice they're not to get this lamb that they're going to use and sacrifice on the 14th, on the 8th day or the 9th day, or on the 11th or the 12th, or even the day before or the 13th. They need to get this lamb ready on the 10th day. They're to take it and they keep it with them and then it's sacrificed on the 14th. This is so significant. And this again is all this model that the Lord was setting up thousands of years in advance. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Now, of course, this speaks of Jesus. A male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now, interesting, the word that's translated in our translations here as in is a Hebrew word, bayan, B-E-Y-N, and it simply means between. So a probably more accurate translation of this is that the congregation of Israel shall kill it between the evenings. In other words, they're given a 24-hour window in which to offer this Passover celebration, the sacrifice. As it happens, typically they did offer it in the evening, um, but they had this window, 24-hour window in which to do it, which becomes very significant, as you'll see as we move on. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the upper door posts of the houses wherein uh, they shall eat it. And thus you shall eat it with your loins girded, with your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. They were getting ready to leave Egypt, remember. So they're told to get everything ready, get your shoes on, coats on, and then you celebrate this Passover because it says, the Lord says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And I will see the blood and I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So once again, those marked by the blood will be spared from God's wrath. Just as those who are marked by Christ's blood are spared from God's wrath. And you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So this, of course, was what took place in Egypt. There was to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month. Note that I've made the point, but let me make it again. It was on the 10th day. It wasn't the 8th or the 9th or the 12th. It was the 10th day of the month they were to take this lamb. And the lamb had to be the perfect male lamb without blemish. And then on the 14th day of the month, they were to kill the lamb in the evening. The blood was to put upon the, the lintels, the doorposts, and anybody who passed under the blood into the house would be saved from God's judgment upon the firstborn of the land. In Leviticus 23, we read, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. In the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And then on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unto the Lord, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Now notice that last statement there, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is on the 15th, but they were to eat unleavened bread from the 14th onwards. Seven days, starting on the 14th, they eat unleavened bread, but specifically on the 15th, 
is a day set aside referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's all detailed in Exodus 12, 12 uh, through 20. Uh, and here, just looking at some of these verses, picking up verse 18. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and 20th day, so the 21st day of the month at even. It's very clear that they're for seven days, starting on the 14th, going through to the 21st, uh, they're to eat unleavened bread. And for verse 19, seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses, for whosoever eats that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he be a stranger or born in the land, you shall eat nothing leavened, in all your habitations shall you eat unleavened bread. So very clear instruction. Leaven, of course, speaks of sin. And so it had to be removed. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, 16, we're told this. Three times in a year, all thy males shall appear uh, or appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose in the feast or festival, if you like, of unleavened bread. So not just the 15th, but for that seven day festival where they would eat unleavened bread. Maybe a little confusing. If you read through this, you might think it says the Feast of Unleavened Bread and you may in your mind think, well, that's the 15th. No, it's speaking of the whole period, the whole seven days. All Jewish males would be expected to go to the place that the Lord would speak of. And we'll talk of that in a second. Uh, and this whole seven day period would be a period, a festival, if you like, of celebration to the Lord. And in the Feast of Weeks, which you and I call Pentecost, and in the Feast of Tabernacles. So the beginning of their religious celebrations through the year, and then the Feast of Pentecost, and then in the ones uh, toward the end of their religious year. Uh, and they shall not appear before me empty, says the Lord. And notice it says, in the place which he should choose. Now, actually, we find initially that place was Shiloh uh, in Israel, and that's where the tabernacle was originally set up. Later, it would be moved to Jerusalem. Of course, during the time of David, the ark is brought to Jerusalem. And of course, then David lays the plans as Solomon builds the temple. And that becomes the place of worship from that point on. So these were the places that all the Jews were to appear three times in a year. It was mandated that they had to go and celebrate these festivals, these celebrations. Now, if we just look at this on a, uh, a chart to see how it all plays out. The 14th is the Feast of Passover. The 15th will be the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was referred to as a high Sabbath. No work was permitted. The days either end of that, the 14th and 21st, were special feast days, but certain work, servile work or work for which they wouldn't receive payment, but for preparing of food and other things was permitted on those days. And so the Feast of First Fruits could be as early as the 16th if the Saturday Sabbath happened to be the 15th, or it might not occur until the 22nd. So the Feast of First Fruit wasn't fixed by the date, it was fixed by where the Saturday Sabbath occurred in the week. So Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread were fixed by the dates, like for us, Christmas is always on the 25th. But like we have in this country, Easter can be variable, it's dependent on different factors. Well, the Feast of First Fruits could be either on the 16th of the month or it could be as late as the 22nd depending on when the Passover fell and you'll see why that's significant how does all this then fit in with Palm Sunday I'm sure that's the question you've been sitting there wondering well how are all these things connected let's have a quick look in John's gospel we encounter something very strange we're familiar of course with this first miracle that Jesus does at this wedding at Cana in Galilee Jesus's mother, uh, Mary, was there. And of course, they ran out of wine. And picking up verse three, uh, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, woman, 
Notice, by the way, Jesus never refers to Mary as mother. Just an interesting point. Jesus never speaks of Mary as mother. He refers to her by other terms, but never by mother. I just, just share that with you because I just think it's an interesting point. But he says to a woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. All right. What an interesting statement of Jesus. Well, what we can deduce from that quite clearly is that there would be an hour coming where it would be the hour. But this was clearly not it. Jesus is saying, this is not the, the, the time, not my time, to effectively present himself to the nation. That's really what Jesus was saying. Now, this is something we see throughout Jesus's ministry. We see miracle after miracle. And this one from Mark chapter 1, verse 40, a leper comes to him. Jesus cleanses the leper uh, and uh, tells him to go uh, and provide the offering to the priest and so on. But notice what Jesus says after this miracle has occurred. He says to this man, see thou say nothing to any man. Now, wouldn't you think that this would be a great opportunity for Jesus to burst onto the scene and show that he's God by doing these incredible miracles? And yet Jesus says, don't say anything to anyone. You think, well, that's a bit strange. But we see it all through the Gospels in Mark chapter 3. We read, for he healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues and unclean spirits. When he saw him, uh, he fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. So Jesus is almost kind of undercover. He's saying, don't say who I am. Don't publish who I am. In Mark chapter 7, okay, we read of this miracle. Um, this uh, man whose ears are open, his tongue's loose, he's this deaf uh, uh, and dumb man, he's healed. And Jesus charged them that they should tell no man. Now, as it happened, we're told, but the more he charged them, so much more a great deal they published it. Because, of course, they were just so blown away. But Jesus kept playing down, not allowing them to make this big statement that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, we see the same thing. We have here this leper again is being cleansed. And uh, Jesus said unto him, see thou tell no man. And then in Matthew chapter 9, again, uh, their eyes were open and Jesus straight charged them saying, see that no man knows it. Okay, so again, there's this, this strange situation that seems to be going on. The Pharisees went out and held a council meeting against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all and charged them that they should not make him known. Why is it that Jesus was saying to people, don't say who I am, don't tell people. He's still doing his miracles, but he's playing it down all the time. Now, one of the most incredible ones is in John chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And we read verse 15, that when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Jesus turned down the opportunity to be hailed as the king. Why? Because it wasn't the right time. See, Jesus came to be king of the nations and king of Israel. Yet he refused to allow the people to make him king. Moreover, he actually discouraged the people from saying who he was. And you could argue that it's probably the worst PR tactic imaginable to the natural mind. But Jesus was not into fame but obedience. And he came to do the will of his father. Back into Luke 8, uh, verse 56. Um, this is after 
this girl has been brought back from the dead. Her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. In Matthew 16, we read there, and he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, there's an incredible revelation that Peter has to make this statement, but notice Jesus' response. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Don't tell people that I am the Messiah. In Luke chapter 4, we read this, And they all in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him headlong. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. Now, this is a really strange situation. Imagine this. Jesus has been speaking in the synagogue. He's wound up the Jewish leaders. They drag him out. They take him to the top of this hill and they're about to throw him off. And he just walks through the middle of them. I mean, can you imagine that scenario? I mean, why was it that they couldn't do anything to him they couldn't physically harm him they couldn't throw him off the edge of this cliff and by the way this is a place known as mount precipice this is him just at the side of nazareth looking down on the jezreel valley you can see the picture there and it really is a very very steep drop and they bring jesus to the edge of this place ready to push him off and he just walks through the midst of them you think how how did he do that clearly god was protecting him god was supernaturally watching over him because there was work to be done and there was a timetable that God was working to. Now we read in John 7, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him now we of course in our regular studies are going through jude jude was one of those brothers jude may have even been the one that said this it was one of those brothers of jesus or it could have been james but one of them said this and saying yeah why don't you just go show yourself to the world but jesus said unto them my time is not yet come incredible statement picking up from john uh, chapter 7 verse 28 then cried jesus in the temple as he taught saying you both know me and you know whence i am and I'm not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Then they sought to take him, and notice it again. But no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. You see, they didn't just not grab hold of him because they were a bit embarrassed or frightened, or they thought Jesus was tougher than they were, and they didn't want to put themselves in a difficult predicament. They didn't touch him because his hour was not yet come. God engineered the circumstances so although this violent mob was raising up against him they could do nothing because it was not the right time back in john 8 verse 19 then said they unto him where is thy father jesus answered you neither know me nor my father if you had known me you should have known my father also these words spoke jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. You see, this isn't just an isolated thing. Throughout Jesus' ministry, everything is gearing up for a specific day. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Can you imagine that scenario? That They're getting ready to stone Jesus, and yet they can't find him, and he's walking right in the middle of them. 
Something was going on that was supernatural here that God was working to protect Jesus until this very day. Now, I'm going to take you to the autumn and winter uh, period in AD 31. So this is the autumn winter before we come round to the springtime when Jesus will be crucified. So this is roughly six months now before Jesus will be crucified. Jesus is up in Caesarea Philippi, up in northern Israel. It's a great um, place where the Romans used to come and uh, they used to have these hot springs there and so on. And Jesus said unto who say you I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as we said earlier, but he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, from this point, the countdown begins. Okay, so the countdown to Passion Week, if you like. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So Jesus, from this time, starts to work towards this countdown, this schedule, this timing that God has already foreordained that had been recorded thousands of years in advance. Notice again the statement that Jesus was going to be raised again on the third day after being killed. It's an important point that we realize it was raised on the third day. Now, for many sessions of teaching through these things in the past, many studies I've done, I had always assumed that the mountain where the transfiguration takes place was Mount Hermon in northern Israel. But as we looked at a few weeks ago, going through the book of Jude, I now have changed my mind. I think, and it doesn't matter, it's not doctrine, it doesn't change anything uh, significantly, other than I think it's really provocative that I think that the mountain was actually Mount Nebo, which is in southern Israel. And we read this, after six days, now after they've been in Caesarea Philippi, my contention now is that they travelled down to this mountain. After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James and John, his brother, and brings them up to a high mountain apart. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment as white as the light. Now we're told it's a high mountain. There are a number of mountains in Israel that, that could qualify for this. Certainly Mount Hermon is a good possibility. It's closer to Caesarea Philippi where they were. But notice where, or the, the time frame before they get to this mountain, it's six days. And it is six days journey to get down from Caesarea Philippi down to Mount Nebo. And Jesus took with him, of course, Peter James, we saw that, and he's transfigured. The interesting thing is that Mount Nebo is much closer to Jerusalem. And notice what they are going to be talking about. And we'll look at this in a second. It's a, pretty much a flat journey, by the way, all the way down. In fact, it's downhill from Caesarea Philippi to start with. It's only the mountain at the end where there's a bit of a climb. Easily, this journey could have been accomplished in that time frame. And we're told, uh, and behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah. Now, why is this interesting? Because... Moses ended his time on earth on Mount Ebo, uh, Mount, Mount Nebo, sorry. Um, Elijah was raptured from Mount Nebo or the valley uh, at the base of it. So both Moses and Elijah are effectively, and I believe, and we talked about this in our study of Jude, I believe that Moses was also raptured. And we, if you want a clarification on that, go back and look at the study we did in Jude a few weeks back. Both these individuals left planet earth from this point. And now they are called to this same place and notice the topic of conversation. They said, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Okay, this is the topic of conversation. Moses and Elijah have been called to talk about his death, which he should accomplish, notice, at Jerusalem. 
And as they lift up their heads from Mount Jerusalem, just over the side of the Dead Sea, you can see in the picture there, that's the Dead Sea, just over the back there is Jerusalem, which sits on top of another mountain. In fact, the two mountains are very close. You can see the yellow dots at the bottom of the screen there. Mount Nebo to Jerusalem is not very far, and you can certainly see one from the other. And it seems to me very likely then that this is the place that Jesus has this meeting with Moses and Elijah to tell them what they're to do. He's given them a specific job to do. And of course, Peter and James and John are there with him and they see all this going on. Now, <clears throat> what it seems is then they travel down from Caesarea Philippi to Mount Nebo, this six day journey. From there, they do travel back up to the region of Galilee and come to Capernaum. Now, I'll show you scripture in a minute, which seems to qualify and confirm this. And then from that point, they then gradually over the next six months, make their way down finally to Jerusalem. Now, what the another qualification, as it were, for why Mount Nebo seems to be the likely one here is, is that we're told in Mark chapter nine that they departed thence from Mount Nebo or from this mountain and passed through Galilee. Now, if they were at Mount Nebo, sorry, Mount Hermon at the top, they wouldn't pass through Galilee to get to Capernaum because Capernaum is right on the northern edge of the Galilee. The statement is very clear in scripture. They pass through Galilee and they come to Capernaum. So that seems to be where they are. Again, I'm not to make big doctrine of that, but it's just an interesting point. It all seems to join together perfectly. Now, as they start this journey now down to Jerusalem, while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And notice specifically what Jesus says, And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Again, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. This is the verse we read a few moments ago. And the chief priest describes would be killed and raised again on the third day. Now, just a little bit of a uh, simple deduction here. If Jesus is going to be raised on the third day, as very clearly he says, before the third day, and if we were, of course, meeting in person, I'd be asking you the questions, what comes before the third day? And I hope you would say the second day. And then I'd say, well, what comes before the second day? And I'm hoping that your mathematical uh, genius is sufficient to allow you to realize that, that would be the first day. What comes before the first day? Well, effectively, day zero. And that means that we can plot backwards as well to give us our typical Passion Week. We know the resurrection occurred on the third day, no doubt from scripture. Well, if you look at that, you only have one option of where the crucifixion could have taken place. And it had to take place on the day zero as we look at this. Now, we know that the resurrection took place on the first day of the week, which was a Sunday, which means before Sunday, you'd have Saturday. And before Saturday, I think you're with me on this, I think you get to Friday. And of course, before Friday, you'd have Thursday. So there we have the whole of Passion Week effectively laid out. No contention, no confusion. It's very simple, a simple bit of deductive logic. But there are many other ways we can demonstrate this. But for now, hopefully that suffices as to why we're looking at this as we are. So summary so far. Jesus came to do the will of his father. He was looking forward to a specific hour. Because of this, he did not want people to make him known before the right time. And at the right time, and as it approaches, he heads toward Jerusalem. Now, we get to the hour. Yes, the Bible actually tells us when this took place, when this moment arrived. And we read, and Jesus answered them saying, and this is in John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour is come. 
that the Son of Man should be glorified. Notice always it's been, my hour is not yet come. See you tell no man. But now Jesus says, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, he says, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Now, Jesus wasn't speaking of a 60-minute hour. here. He's talking about a specific moment in time. This is the hour. You know, we, we use that uh, expression ourselves. You know, uh, you know in, in our language, we use that you know, a type of expression, you know, they talk about the hour. We don't necessarily mean a 60 minute window, but it's just a period of time. You know, Winston Churchill spoke about our darkest hour, you know, and we have these kind of things that we use. But Jesus is using this in this context to refer to this specific moment in time. Up until now, it has not been the right time, but now it is the right time. So why this day? What hour was it? Well, the hour that Jesus speaks about the moment he says this in John chapter 12, and you can see from the text, is the Saturday evening as he had a meal in Bethany, which in the, for their mindset is the new day, as I've already said. It's the day of the triumphal entry, what you and I refer to as Palm Sunday. Everything in Jesus's ministry was all gearing up to Palm Sunday, to this one day, the triumphal entry. We read in the text on the next day. So this is now the as it kind of goes over from the evening into the morning, the next uh, daylight period. Much people that will come to the feast, because of course you remember they have to come to the the celebration in Jerusalem. It's one of the things that were mandated. They heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, "Hosanna!" Save now is what it means. Blessed is the King of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus. When he had found a young ass sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting as an sitting on an ass's colt. So this incredible statement that Jesus now is coming into Jerusalem. This prophecy, as we looked at already um, from uh, Zechariah being declared. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then uh, they then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Now, Zechariah 9, 9, that prophecy I mentioned, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Notice what it's saying. Jesus is coming as a king. Up until now, Jesus has said, don't announce me. Don't make me your king. But now he comes in intentionally riding in, just as Solomon had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey in the same way when he came as a king. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem as a king. The only day in Jesus' entire ministry that he presents himself as a king to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's the one day he does it. Now, we get a lot of insight from Luke's account. Luke 19, we read this. And it came to pass that when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go you into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man asks you, why do you loose him? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent their way, uh, sent their way and found even as he had said unto them. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. They're quoting 
This Psalm 118, they're making this statement, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitudes said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And as I showed you earlier on this morning, I've got one of those stones from this road down from the Mount of Olives, down to Jerusalem, this path that goes down. Those stones that didn't cry out, they didn't need to because the disciples were crying out their praise and so on. Um, but uh, I keep it just in case one day he wants to sing God's, God's praise because the whole of creation one day is going to declare Okay, verse 41 of Luke 19, we read on. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem? Because, we read, saying, if thou had known, even thou, notice this, at least in this thy day. It's a specific day. It's the day that everything had been gearing up to. The things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee around and keep thee on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus holds Israel, Jerusalem, accountable for not recognizing what day this was. It was the day of thy visitation. It was the day that the king, the Messiah, presented himself to Israel. And apart from this small group of people that are praising and worshiping him on the road, the nation, the city of Jerusalem, the scribes, the Pharisees, sat there oblivious, missing completely this day. Of course, it was the greatest week in history. No question about that. Jesus came to do the will of his father and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't want to be made known throughout his incredible three and a half years of ministry until one specific day. But on that day, Palm Sunday, he intentionally arranges the whole event, getting the donkey, riding in and so on and so on and sending the disciples. And uh, as we just said, so, you know, and much to the disdain of the Jewish leaders. So what was so special about this day? Why did Jesus say his hour had now come? Why did Jesus allow himself to be worshipped as Messiah the Prince on this day and on this day only? Why did Jesus rebuke the Jews for not knowing what day this was? It implies they should have known. What was so important that Jesus pronounced his national blindness upon Israel because they missed this day. They missed the time of their visitation. You can't do that unless they had a chance of actually knowing. By the way, that blindness has now lasted for 1,900 years. But the reason for this day goes back to the book of Daniel. Now, once we finished our study in Jude, we're going to move into Daniel and we'll go through this book in detail. But just for now, we find the answer is recorded way back in about 537 BC. Israel's 70 years of captivity in Babylon was over. Somewhere around 50,000 Jews had returned home. But Daniel, now aged about 83, had decided to remain in Babylon. He'd been there since the age of about 14. It kind of had become his home. His heart was in Jerusalem, but this was where he, he lived. And as an old man, he chose not to make that journey back. But in chapter 9, it reveals that Daniel was confused. The captivity was over, but Jerusalem still lay in ruins. So Daniel turns to the prophecies of Jeremiah and realizes there's a second period of 70 years, a judgment that was decreed upon Jerusalem. So he sets his heart to pray for this period for this situation now just to give you the background of this 
In 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem and lays siege to it. And that begins a period of time that Jeremiah refers to as the servitude of the nation. The 70 year to the day period that comes to a close in 537 BC by a decree from Cyrus, the Persian king, who takes over uh, Babylon from uh, the Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty. And then in 587, Nebuchadnezzar finally comes against Jerusalem, third siege, destroys the city, and that begins a period of time, the desolations of Jerusalem. Okay, And then finally, that period of 70 years comes to an end to the day in 518 BC with the decree of Darius the Great. There's a 19-year window at the beginning of that, of course, and so therefore there's a 19-year window at the end between the first siege and the third siege, between the end of the servitude of the nation and between the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, Daniel sets his heart to pray. It's one of the most impassioned prayers in Scripture. He quotes almost verbatim Solomon's prayer in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, confessing the sins of the people, interceding for the city. But partway through his prayer for Jerusalem, Daniel's interrupted, not by a knock on the door, but by a visitation from angel Gabriel. And Gabriel gives this staggering prophecy. We haven't got time to go into it in depth, but just let me give you the highlights here. 77s or Shabuim, or literally weeks of years. If we go through this, there's various uh, expressions. The Jews have a uh, this week of years, which is literally what we refer to as 490 years. That's what Gabriel is giving to Daniel. We actually, of course, with the Jews, they have a week of days, like our regular week, seven days. But they also have a week of weeks. So we see that going from um, the Feast of First Fruits through to Pentecost, for example. Uh, 49 days, it's the 50th day is Pentecost, uh, so it's seven weeks. Uh, we have a week of months, which is a religious calendar, but we also have this week of years, and it occurs a number of times in the Old Testament. That's what Gabriel is saying to Daniel here. So now we've got the context. Gabriel says, 490 years are determined upon your people, obviously Israel, upon thy holy city, Jerusalem, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now, lots of things being said here. This prophecy for Israel and Jerusalem, to finish transgression. Well, that's not happened yet. So we know straight away this prophecy has not yet been completed. But make an end of sins, reconciliation for iniquity. Well, certainly an end of sins in terms of people sinning hasn't occurred, but reconciliation for iniquity occurred on the cross. To bring in everlasting righteousness, well, we're not there yet. To seal up vision and prophecy. And then to anoint the most holy place or the most holy one. And then we're given a, a more detailed breakdown of this period of time. Gabriel says to Daniel, know therefore and understand. See, scripture is very clear in these things. This isn't there to confuse us. It's there that we would know and understand. And Daniel's told that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, and that command is given actually by King Artaxerxes Longimanus uh, in 445 BC. From that point of that command uh, to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince. Now we're given a time frame of when the Messiah is going to come. There's going to be seven weeks or 49 years and then a further 434 years. And the street is going to be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And Ezra and Nehemiah detail the problems the Jews had rebuilding the city and so on. So this command to restore, restore and build Jerusalem is given. We've got these two periods of time. 
So we got this 483 years total, uh, after which the Messiah is going to come. The street and the wall are going to be re rebuilt again in that time. So to make it clear, there's going to be a command given. This is after Daniel's time, but the command was given. From that point, there would be 483 years, and then the Messiah would come. Israel should have not been in any doubt as to when the Messiah was coming. They should not have missed the day of their visitation because it had been prophesied. As I said, that command, 1st of Nisan, 445 BC, in our calendar, it would be the 14th of March, 445 BC. We count forward 483 days, but of course, God is very specific. It's not just about 483 days. It specifically gives us the time frame. God doesn't deal with approximates. Remember, we said earlier, God is able to declare the end from the beginning. Now, I won't take the time to take you through the detail, but throughout the Bible, prophetic years are always given as 360 day years. A number of times you can see lots of scriptures there referencing it. The reason seems to be that once the earth was on a 360 day orbit, it's not now 365 and a quarter days it takes us to go around the sun. But once upon a time, it seems to be all the ancient calendars seem to agree and confirm this. That we had used to have a 360 day year. That's why, by the way, we have 360 days, sorry, 360 degrees in a circle. This is where it all came from. Not that's why we don't have 365 degrees in a circle, 360, because it was the way the, the world was calculated. Even Isaac Newton made reference to these things and so on. Anyway, uh, all the ancient calendars, as you can see there, all based upon 360 days in a year. So uh, for the sake of time, I won't go into detail. There's in the notes if you want to look at it, quote from Isaac Newton and so on. So if we look at this, we've got 483 years. But if we know how many days per year, i.e. 360, we can actually calculate the exact time of this prophecy. Well, when we do that, if we times 360 days by the 483 years, we come to a number which is 173,880. That is the specific time that Gabriel says to Daniel there will be from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah comes. In other words, Daniel was told the exact day the Messiah would come. And when we do it out, when we work out the mass from the 14th of March, 445 in the on our calendar, the first edition in the Jewish calendar, that comes to the triumphal entry on the 6th of April, AD 32, or the 10th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. Exactly to the very day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the day that had been prophesied that the king would enter, that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. Do you notice what date it was in the Jewish calendar? The 10th of Nisan. It's just a quick summary of this. They were to take a lamb when? On the 10th day of the month. When did they welcome Jesus in, the lamb that was to be slain? They welcomed him in on Palm Sunday. It was the 10th day of the month. That lamb had to be perfect. On the 14th day, they were to kill the lamb between the evenings. And the blood and the lamb, the blood of the lamb was to be put on the lintel and the doorposts. If we look at a plan of Passion Week, as it were, we get to the Sunday. You can see hopefully a red square at the top there on the Sunday, the second column. That's when the triumphal entry occurs. The night before Jesus was at the meal in Bethany, but you see the color coding show you when the evening starts and the, the same day. They take the lamb on the 10th day and then on the 14th day, on the Thursday, they kill the lamb, just as had been detailed in the Passover celebration. 
So just to make this clear, that day there in the evening, Jesus is celebrating this meal at Bethany in the evening. The Sabbath ends at six o'clock and it becomes the new day. The next block of time that what would to us will be the Sunday morning. Jesus rides into Jerusalem this very day, as it had been prophesied, as we've just seen by Daniel, the exact day that Jesus should ride into Jerusalem. The next day is the Monday. Of course, that's the day that Jesus then goes in. He sees a fig tree, curses it. The following day, they come back past the fig tree and they see it's all withered up. And the Tuesday is the day that Jesus then gives what's referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Just a couple of days now before he's crucified, he tells the disciples all the events that are going to happen before his return. Matthew 24 typically uh, is our go-to chapter on that. And then we get to that evening on what is the Tuesday evening in our mindset. And that's when this meal takes place. And when Judas is so enraged that this perfume uh, is poured all over Jesus' feet. We read in uh, John's account, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And, and John adds the comment, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. So John nails it as to why Judas really said this in the first place. That then leads to the next day, which is the day that Jesus then tells the disciples to go and get a room ready. Go and get ready that we can celebrate the Passover together. And then in the evening, they get to the Last Supper. And it says, when the day of unleavened bread Okay, this came, not the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember we said this earlier, the Day of Unleavened Bread. This is when they start to eat unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he said, Peter and John saying, go prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, where will thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, behold, when you are entered in the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters. And you shall say unto the good man of the house, the master says unto thee, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. Go and prepare the Passover. Jesus celebrated that Passover with his disciples. Again, Luke's account, he shall show you a large upper room furnished. They make ready, and they went and found, as he said to them, and there they made ready the Passover. So as it becomes the evening, as the sundown at six o'clock in the evening, Jesus then, you can see that bit that's highlighted at the bottom of the screen there, Jesus then celebrates the Passover with his disciples in what is the Jewish mindset, the 14th, it's become the 14th already in the evening for them, but the 14th for them carries all the way through till sundown the next day. And so Jesus not only celebrates the Passover with his disciples, but on the same day, according to the Jewish reckoning, also is able to become the Passover for us. And we'll pick up there next Sunday. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning to review these things. Oh, and Lord, we are just so in awe at your complete control of history, engineering all these situations and circumstances, foretelling in advance, Lord, through Moses, through Daniel, through Zechariah, Lord, all that would take place. And Lord, it was all fulfilled exactly as your word said it would be. And that Jesus, you came, that this one day you presented yourself to Israel, but as a nation, they missed it. Oh, Father, we thank you by your grace that we have not missed that calling that opportunity to recognize that you are the Messiah. Lord, that now is the day of salvation. Now is the hour that we must receive you. Father, we pray that you give us the boldness and the courage to share 
this gospel with our friends whilst this opportunity to receive salvation remains. Oh, Father, help us to be encouraged and blessed by these things, recognizing the completeness of your word and your complete control of all these things. Lord, we just thank you for this time now in Jesus' name. Amen.